0: I am fantasy and paranormal romance author Leslie Penelope, and welcome to My Imaginary Friends, a look behind the scenes of an author mapping the worlds in my head and making them a reality. Hello, friends. Today is Sunday, September 4th, 2022, and this is episode 185, 5, 185 of My Imaginary Friends. I'm Leslie. So this week's best thing was the National Book Festival that was yesterday as I'm recording this. It was in DC, sponsored by the Library of Congress. And I had an amazing, fantastic time. So it started Friday evening at, uh, there was a reception at the actual Library of Congress, which I've lived in Maryland since I was nine years old. and I've never been to the Library of Congress. Uh, So yeah, it was my first time there. The reading room was open, which is an amazing, the architecture, the painting, the tile, like just everything about that entire space is amazing. And so yeah, there was a reception with some of the authors and I guess guests and sponsors. My agent Sarah was there. Um, one of my other agent sisters, B.L. Blanchard, who was on the program was there and I got to see her again. So that started it and they had an amazing program of f- five of the authors who were going to be featured at the festival gave very short speeches and they were all really good, including Nick Offerman from Parks and Rec. And he was like second or third. And I was like, why did they put Nick Offerman in the middle and make people go after him? But the people who went after him were just as good or better. So nobody was a slacker in these speeches. Um, The Librarian of Congress, Carla Hayden, was there um introducing things. So that started out really cool. And then Saturday came and I had brunch with my agent and some of the other authors and then went into my panel, which was Come Into My World, Vivid Places and People in Fiction. It was me with Tochi Anyabuchi. and it was hosted by B.A. Parker. Uh, she was the moderator, and she's the new co-host of Code Switch. And I did not also realize until she told me when we met that I actually knew her from Morgan State University. I used to work there. I worked there. I taught some workshops, but I was working on their website. Now this was like 15 years ago. But I was kind of leading up their big website redesign, helping to choose the new software and then implement the whole thing. They had a web designer who was like a full-time position. I had been brought in because I had worked at Johns Hopkins University before at their digital media center, teaching lots of workshops and just kind of helping to run the digital media center there. And Professor Mellinger, who his son went to Hopkins, he was the head of sort of trying to create a digital media center at Morgan. So he brought me in and I worked there for several years on and off part time. And so that was so cool to see a student who i had known who is now on NPR and moderating this panel, like doing amazing things. It just it made me so happy. And then the panel was great. Um, such good questions and we had a good conversation. Afterwards, it was a signing. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, they sold out of The Monsters We Defy. I don't know. I, didn't, I never actually made it to the bookstore, so I hadn't seen how many copies they had in the first place. But some of the audience members who left the Q&A left the panel early so they could buy a book. It was already sold out. So I guess people had bought these books before the panel even happened, which it's also interesting. Like you would expect, oh, people hadn't necessarily heard of me or maybe they had. I don't know. I don't know what was happening. But I, fortunately, I had brought book plates because I think I learned from a Polycon where there were like no books to be had. The, the bookstore there this year was a mess. And I don't know, I think I'd seen I'd seen on the uh, Facebook group for a Polycon bring book plates and I had just forgotten. So As I was like running around getting ready yesterday morning for the book festival, I brought book plates, not even really thinking that the book would sell out, but just like, I should have brought them to a polycon, so I'm going to bring them because I had my bookmarks and stickers that I was giving away also. And it was a really good thing because I was able to offer people something, you know, so they could go still buy the book wherever they wanted to get it and have a signed copy with the book plate. So... Anyway, it was a wonderful experience. It was also the most like pro event that I've ever done. And I've done a lot of events for the past few years. You know, before pandemic, I was traveling a lot. I do a lot of speaking. I do a lot of conferences. Um of various sizes. But this was the first time I ever had like a handler, like my own person assigned to me to like bring me to the green room and then bring me here and bring me to the signing and just make you feel really, really special. Like you feel like a celebrity when you have a person assigned to you to help you do things and like get water for you and and hold your bag and stuff. And I was like, ah. And then usually for panels, there's like a table up in front and you're sitting behind the table. This was the first event I think I've done where it's like armchairs. Like we were sitting in armchairs and we had mics. You know, there was the, the sound guy came up and mic'd us and they were recording the video. I think it will be available in the coming weeks from the website. And I will definitely let you know and also it might be on code switch like it was also being recorded apparently for code switch so which i listen to on npr and um that's also crazy right so yeah overall seeing people getting to meet readers having a really great conversation selling out doing the signing being around other amazing authors although i really didn't talk to many of them because there were so many authors there and you, you kind of i saw a few people like from far away or the backs of their heads are like is that uh but I didn't really get to to chat with a lot of people because it was only a one day conference, you know, and so much going on. Such a big the the Washington Convention Center, which is where they have the car show and, you know, awesome Con, like huge convention center. So all of the rooms, you know, there were things were everywhere and uh, they actually used the entire exhibit floor for the signings because I guess everyone had their own booth. And then there was I, I didn't even get to whole parts of the, the building. So anyway, it was a wonderful day, and I had a lot of fun. And I really had a, so, so much fun. I had a really good time. I was really invigorated and inspired by the whole event. It was run really smoothly. There was so much good communication. Like I, had a, I had a parking voucher. Like It was just like put together so nicely, and it made you feel like you were a part of something. I mean, it's the National Book Festival. It's by the Library of Congress, so of course it's going to be well run. Although, maybe not, of course, because... Government doesn't really run things super well, but this was great. And it was something that I had, I had really been wanting to be a part of for a long time, a sort of bucket list kind of thing. It used to be held out on the National Mall. And, uh, so you'd always see the big tents and all of the books. And it was nice not to be out in the heat and to be in the convention center. But yeah, so I can, I can check that off. And maybe one day I'll be invited back, but it was, it was great to be invited this time. In my writing update, working on the Black Towns book. It's going good. I'm back in a good period. I've been waking up earlier, so not quite 6am, but like 6.15ish, trying to get writing by 7 so that I have an extra hour at the beginning to just push through, get more done. And that's working. I'm doing two passes and basically only two passes of every scene. So working on revising the fast draft, the first draft that I did. And a lot of times that means rewriting. So the first pass, Of this process is, you know, redoing, kind of doing another first draft of the first draft that I have already written. And second pass is cleaning and polishing. And it's not enough for prime time, but it's enough for my editor. And I keep reminding myself that it doesn't have to be perfectly polished because it's going to go through a developmental edit. And it is, you know, fairly clean, like my second pass of the revision is a very clean pass. It might not have all of the artistry that I wish it did and kind of the nuance that comes with subsequent passes, but it's good enough. So I think that I've gotten about eight chapters this past week done, which is great. I feel good about that moving along, still having to stop every day. (laughs) and um, do light research and a little bit of world-building stuff. But that's just par for the course. That's how revisions go. When you're making the actual decisions, no more placeholders. I have to figure everything out. And it's actually been coming nicely. I I put some more things in my Pinterest board in terms of how things look. And I've just found some really great images from artists that I'm kind of basing things on, but also changing a lot. I can kind of look at this picture and then imagine how my world differs from the illustration that I found that is sort of the basis and then yeah, keep writing from there. So yeah, that's I'm, this week was really good word-wise and I'm hoping to get another good week because only four of them left at this point. I'm really hoping that I don't get stuck again, which is always a possibility. And I'm at a, a new section of the book, uh, so there's kind of two big sections left I'm I'm headed up towards the end of act two, or actually, am I in act three? Once again, the act breaks for this book have been a little mysterious for me. I think I'm actually at the all is lost and I'm headed into act three, but whatever it is, there's two kind of sections of story that are left and I would love to be able to get through them in two weeks. And that would give me two more weeks to print the whole thing out, read it again, Also, there's a whole section that I I haven't written at all. These interstitials that are from the, like a magical character's perspective. I did the first two and then I figured I would figure out the rest of them after I've gotten the bulk of the main story done. So I'm going to need the last two weeks to at least a week to do nothing but those interstitials because they require a lot of craft. Like They're very voicey and I'm weaving a lot of history and magic and stuff in them. And maybe I shouldn't have put them off, but that was the decision I made and I'm sticking with it. And then I'll like, hopefully have a week to print everything out. And it might be like more like three days <laughs> to print everything out, read it through, mark up the document, enter all of those changes into the manuscript and export. And now that I'm thinking about it, I need a whole week for that. I really do. So we're going to keep pushing and make this happen some kind of way. But I'm feeling optimistic, and I'm feeling good about the decisions that I've made in the story so far. So let's hope that continues through the rest of the month, because this baby is due October 1st, and I am turning it in, although October 1st is a Saturday. So maybe I need to double check that. Maybe I'll have to look the third, actually, because I am, I don't, well, we'll see. <laughs> maybe she wants it on Saturday. I can't imagine she's going to read it over the weekend, but who knows? Maybe she will in the writing world news, the um, Penguin Random House Simon & Schuster antitrust trial wrapped up, and I hadn't really been keeping up. I've just been seeing some overviews that, that came out of it, specifically from Jane Friedman in the Hot Sheet, which is a paid newsletter on the publishing industry that I really recommend for authors and people interested in the industry. It's not very expensive, and I'll link to it in the show notes. But then again, I am high input and I need lots of information to make me feel good about knowing what's happening in my industry. Um, but yeah, she had a, she, it's an every other week publication. So she talked about it two weeks ago. And then by the time this issue, the latest issue came out, it was over. The thing that I highlighted from this past issue about this case of the merger of Penguin Random House and Simon and Schuster, which is being opposed by the Department of Justice for antitrust reasons, is this quote. Of the 58,000 trade titles published per year, fully half of those titles sell fewer than one dozen books. Not a typo, that's one dozen. More broadly, 90% of titles sell fewer than 2,000 units. Now this is traditional published titles, print, not including eBooks at all. And the caveat here, because it is, it can be a little bit misleading, is that these are based on you know books that have ISBNs, and they're probably using BookScan to ter- determine how these books were sold. So it doesn't include libraries. It's only major retailers. Still, traditional publishers publish 58,000 titles, half of which sell fewer than 12 copies in print. Like none of that makes any sense, right? Um, And then 90% of titles sell fewer than 2000 units. So if this is accurate and to be believed, and this is what was said at the trial under oath, then it really puts a lot of things into perspective. It's hard to sell books. It's hard whether you're traditional or whether you're indie. You know, I have indie books that haven't sold 2,000 copies, definitely. And so uh, fortunately, most of my trad books have. And a lot of people are taking away the fact that, well, traditional publishers don't really know <laughs> what they're doing, <laughs> which is to say, no one knows what's going to make a book take off. Um, the other statistic that I don't—I didn't write down—but it was something like they spend two percent of their budget on marketing, crazy low. Um, so this whole trial was about authors with big advances, two hundred fifty thousand dollars and plus uh, advances, which is only. I think something like 2% of authors get advances that large, and that might be false. I can't, I'm not sure both of those things are 2%, but it's a very tiny percentage are going to get an advance that large. And how the, the merger of these two big publishers going from big five to big four would affect those already wealthy people and so things that came out during during this trial just about how publishing is a gamble, how only a small percentage of the publishers catalog makes them any money at all and they essentially just admitted to throwing things at the wall and and seeing what sticks and in, in any other business that would be completely insane like nobody sells anything else that way the way they sell books they take chances on books you don't know. What book is going to hit, you know, if you throw hundreds of thousands of dollars in marketing at it, there's a chance it will make more money than, you know, someone who gets a fifty thousand or even a hundred thousand dollar advance, which there was a quote going around that said that's not a high advance from publishers saying that, which to most of us getting a six figure advance is a big deal, right? If if I got a six-figure advance, I would think it was a big deal. But in the scheme of things, when you compare it to the million dollar advances, who basically celebrities are usually the ones who get those people with a big platform. But yeah, $100,000 compared to millions is not, is not a lot and does not guarantee you a lot of marketing. So yeah, I haven't paid a huge amount of attention because I don't know how it would change the way that I think about how I publish. You know, as a hybrid author, i I intend to continue being hybrid for as long as I can, as long as I continue getting traditional publishing contracts and, you know, working with publishers that I like working with and that I find benefit beneficial to work with because selling books on your own is every bit as difficult. You know, of the millions of self-published books that came out this year, how many of them sold over a dozen copies? You know, a lot of them don't. you know, there's, It's hard. It's hard selling books, no matter how you do it. And that is the main takeaway, which we already knew, right? Something really troubling that I read in a newsletter that I am subscribed to was this happening in England. So it says the University of Essex has permanently withdrawn Colson Whitehead's 2017 Pulitzer Prize winning novel, The Underground Railroad, because of its quote, graphic description of violence and abuse of slavery. At the University of Exeter, students can opt out of reading Mary Prince, the first narrative of a Black woman to be published in the UK to avoid the, quote, graphic accounts of slavery. History students at another university can avoid reading um, The Diary of Thomas Thistlewood, The Testimony of a Jamaican Slave Owner, because it has details of sexual assaults and extreme violence. And it goes on. And I read this and just got immediately angry. Not because I've actually read any of these books. <laughs> I did not read Underground Railroad because I personally didn't want to read a slave book. My brother read it and he was like, yeah, it's kind of rough. And I'm like, I, yeah. I've read lots of slave narratives and in, in books and things like that. So on its premise, I can understand how, you know, not wanting to read graphic depictions of violence and slavery. However, removing it from curriculum for that reason, because In college and high school is when I was reading most of these books, when I was reading Toni Morrison and just a whole long list of black books that I think it's important to read. And just because it makes you uncomfortable, like at a certain point in your life, you need to be uncomfortable in order to grow and learn. And big swaths of our history and culture are are being erased because it's uncomfortable. And that really rubs me the wrong way. I think we all have to curate what we put in our brains and It is difficult to read about these things that happened. But when we're, especially in America, when we're dealing with, you know, public schools not even teaching slavery or really sanitizing black history, we are running the risk of having people, no matter what race, forget what happened, never learning what happened in the first place. And like the most trite of sayings, if, you know, you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat it. So it was really discouraging to me. You have to be really careful when you want things to be called I'm not going to say censored or banned but like when you want groups to be like have these very strict requirements of content that might blow back on you. And this is an example of that in my opinion. It's like, "Oh, we don't want to have anything that is graphic or harmful or traumatic or triggering or whatever. So we're going to erase everything that happened to your people. You're not going to read about anything about slavery because it's too traumatic and triggering and graphic. And what does that accomplish? And what does that do? And it just made me so angry. I don't have any solutions because the way that our culture is headed and it was always going to be this way, you know. It was always going to get turned around. And um, and I think that a lot of people had rung a lot of alarms about things like this. And to see it actually happening is just incredibly painful and difficult and angering. And then sort of in that vein, I saw that there was controversy around this movie on Netflix called Purple Hearts, which is a very silly romantic comedy? No, not a romance, not really comedy, about a liberal woman and a conservative guy who's a Marine having to do a marriage of convenience. And I saw some article talking about it. it was military propaganda and just Kind of silly critiques. I watched it and I didn't realize that it was like red and blue make purple, and they have to get over their their differences to fall in love. As a love story, it didn't really hold up because both characters were very unlikable. But I did admire that it was trying to find some kind of common ground. To you know, it leaned into you know a liberal woman who had very good points and a conservative guy, and you see, if you're conservative, you believe he had very good points too, and it didn't quite show them really finding common ground in the way that it could have maybe, or maybe it couldn't have, like, I don't know how common ground is found in 2022. So yeah, I thought it was a cute movie as a love story, eh? but I did not necessarily see where the criticism was coming from. And as someone who has, you know, many family members either currently in the military or have, or veterans to call a movie that has a Marine as a main character nothing but military propaganda is actually offensive. Like it wasn't a recruitment video. It was showing how a Marine who was about to be deployed to Iraq, having his conservative opinions, which many people in the military are conservative, hate to break it to you. It's kind of hard to be super progressive and then go off and fight for your country. Um, I don't know. I thought the criticisms were overblown and the movie wasn't great, but it was fine. (laughs) And finally, I am on Susan Dennard's uh, mailing list. She's a YA fantasy author. And she just had a really cool kind of street team idea. She's not calling it a street team, but her new book, she set up a substack for kind of the promotions of this new book. And she's calling it the Hunter Trials Challenge, which is very thematically involved with the book, The Luminaries. And so, I just thought that was a really cool idea. So it's essentially a substack, which is kind of a, a newsletter, but it also has a website component to it. And if you're on this list, you'll get challenges like share three posts about this book coming up. And then you'll be entered into a giveaway for, you know, signed copies of arcs and things like that. I think it's standard street team stuff, but I personally haven't seen it done as, as a substack or in this format. I think it's easier to access in like a Facebook group. Me and Facebook groups are just not getting along. I can barely keep up with my own Facebook group. I add things to it every blue moon. So yeah, I just gave me an idea. I, I've kind of wanted to experiment with Substack, even though I like having control over my newsletter. So I, you know, I use a newsletter service, which Substack is a newsletter service. It would take a lot of time for me to go into the details of why, uh, it's, how it's different. But, um... It's also extremely popular and I subscribe to a lot of different Substacks and I pay for a bunch of them. And it's sort of like Patreons, like supporting creators who either podcasts, you can do a podcast through Substack and monetize it or just written newsletters. Um, so yeah, it's kind of like got me thinking, I I can't take on any more projects, but whenever the next book comes out that I'm publishing, maybe an idea. I want to keep my eye on what she's doing for this street team and um, maybe do something. I don't know. I can't commit to, to anything at this point because uh, I think all of my brain power is going to finishing this book in the next month. And I also signed up for a TikTok class, which I will talk about next week because uh, I think the class will be fully underway next week or halfway through or something. I did not want to get on TikTok. I'm still a little ambivalent about it, but I made the decision to take this class to learn more about it. And we'll be making some videos for TikToks as a part of the class. So I will report back with my my findings as I go through this. I have this real reticence about it because I know it's going to be very time consuming. And I'm hoping that through the class, I will just gain an understanding of it without having it be a drain on the small amounts of free time that I have left. So that is it for me for this week, Uh, goals for the coming week. Just keep writing, get through this, this chunk, you know, this next, if the rest of the book I have left, get through half of it, I would be insanely excited about that. And I will talk to you next week. For episode show notes, and to sign up for the Footnotes newsletter and get the show notes in your inbox, go to myimaginaryfriendsshow.com. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and watch the video episodes on YouTube. You can email me at podcast at lpenelope.com, and I would really appreciate a rating or review to help support the show. My Imaginary Friends is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. For more fantastic podcasts, go to frolic.media slash podcast.